We've been walking through the Gospel of John to just stay focused on Jesus because uh, the Bible says when, um, when things are chaotic around you, you fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the example. And you get calibrated around um, what is true, and that is Jesus. So we've been, we've been doing that. Uh, we're going to look at John 13 today. And this chapter contains one of the most iconic and provocative Images of Jesus, a central image to our faith. Not an easy one, but a very important one. And so uh, I'm going to ask you a question before we get there. And then we'll, uh, after my questioning, we'll start with what theologians call the incarnation, which uh, sounds kind of boring, but it's actually a very important piece of theology to understand if you have any interest at all in the Jesus movement, and I think you do, or else you wouldn't be, you know, spending your Sunday here. So, uh, some questions for you. How do you define greatness? What images come to mind when you think of the word great? Uh, is it a power suit, um, corner office, someone with a lot of direct reports? Maybe you think of, of, of physical attributes, like physical greatness. Is it wealth? Uh, what images come to mind when you hear the word great? How do you define greatness? And then do you aspire to greatness? Do you want to be a great human being at your funeral? Do you want someone to say, uh, she was a great person? Do you want to be a great parent? Do you want to raise great kids? Uh, what if God's definition of greatness was different than yours? Uh, what if being great in the sight of God meant that your kids would be relatively unremarkable in your social circles. Do you still want to raise great kids, kids who are great in the sight of God? Do you want to be a great, a great dad? Do you want to be a great husband, great wife? Do you want to be great? What is your definition of great? What, comes, what are the images uh, that come to mind when you think of the word great? So start with just kind of wrestling through that question, and then um, I want to move on to the mystery of the incarnation, uh, the mystery of the incarnation. So the incarnation is what theologians call the, uh, the idea of God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus. So remember we said that uh, John starts his gospel off um, with his own kind of genealogy uh, that, that deals with where Jesus came from. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, which can also be translated divine wisdom. In the beginning was divine wisdom, and divine wisdom was God, and divine wisdom was with God. He was with God in the beginning, and divine wisdom, or the Word, became flesh, and he walked among us. So we get this idea of God becoming flesh. And that's what theologians call the incarnation. And then when you look at, at, at that concept, it means that when we watch Jesus, when we look at Jesus, we're seeing God in the flesh. We're seeing what it means to be human, as God defined it. And what it means, we, we see the nature and character of God when we watch Jesus interact and walk through the world. So I'm going to, before we get to John... Uh, hang out for a minute in Philippians 2. This is one of the greatest passages in the entire Bible and very important if you want to be a part of the Jesus movement. This is a central um, image to what it means uh, for God to become flesh, for what it means to be human, for what God wants from us. Philippians 2. It's not easy, 
but it's very important. Here we go. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Here we go. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not take equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. He didn't take his God self as something to be clung to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, if these were the only five verses we had as our Bible, you could probably make the case that that's all we need to understand what it means to be human, to understand the nature of God, to understand what God was all about. So Jesus started out in God form for his eternal existence with all the power and comforts and benefits of being God in paradise. And he didn't want to hold on to that. He gave that up for 33 years to become a human pre-indoor plumbing He gave up the comforts and the rights and the paradise of heaven and his status as God and emptied himself to take the form and limitations of a human. And he did that for the good of those who would ultimately kill him. He did that for people who did not deserve it. He did that for those who were very far from God. This is the God that the Bible tells us we serve. This is the God watching over us. This is the God interacting with us. He did not hold on to his rights and his comfort and his stuff and his status. He emptied himself to bring us to God for our own good to help us. So that's the nature Of God. The central image of the Jesus movement is that of giving up your comforts and your rights for the good of others, even your enemies. Now, listen, I'm an only child. That's hard for me. That that's the movement I said yes to. I mean, I'm also an American. That's hard. That, that's hard for me. I mean, this is the greatest empire the world has ever known, and that's why being a part of the greatest empire the world has ever known, it can be harder for us to look at a movement that's about becoming less than, that's for and about the underdog. Central image of the Jesus movement is that of laying down your rights and your comforts. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he 
emptied himself, taking on the very nature of a servant. All right, so now I'm going to move to John 13, and we're going to see this lived out. We're going to see an example of Philippians 2 lived out. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, or he loved them to the fullest, is how that could be translated. He loved them to the most. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things, or had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, so he's aware of his God self, and he's aware that people in the room are about to betray him. See what John does there? He sets like how he creates that emotion. He's aware of his status, and he's aware of the evil intentions of others around him, And he's aware that he's headed back to paradise. And then he'd come from paradise. He rose from the supper. And he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Wash the feet of the disciple who was about to betray him. With the towel that was wrapped, or he dried them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher, if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now let me give you my take on this so we don't go down the wrong path mentally. This is my interpretation of this. In Jesus' day and time, uh, if you went to a place of affluence, you would have the servant, the lowest of the low, wash your, wash your feet. You would, he would wash the feet of uh, the guests at the dinner party because in those days, um, with sandals or bare feet, you walked for many miles. Your feet were dry and cracked and bloody and dirty and nasty. And that represented uh, not only just functionally, but also like the most refreshing thing that you could do for somebody. But there was a lowliness to that, right? To stoop down and, and wash the feet of someone. I don't think that Uh, This was Jesus uh, giving the command to actually wash each other's feet forevermore because there's no longer a need for that. Like if I went to a party at your house and you offered to wash my feet, I wouldn't be coming back because that's weird now. But think in terms of like taking the dirty dishes to the kitchen or, you know, you're eating with somebody and taking their tray to the, to the, um, I don't know what they call it, the, the tray return trash bin thing. That's what we're talking about here. It's about being willing to take the lowly position to meet the real and raw needs of people around you with no concern for your personal comfort 
or status. It says, having in his mind that he was God and that those around him were about to betray him, then you, you have like, like, how would we typically, if we're reading this and we don't know anything else, we, being aware of his power and that those were, around him were about to betray him, Jesus, and then what would we, we would think, you know, shot lasers out of his eyes and blew stuff up. Stuff up. Like that's the, the next logical, aware of his power, but here we see, aware of his power, he tied a towel around his waist and washed the feet of the human beings that he created. Isn't that incredible? Like, I'm, that's really hard with implications for me, but it's really amazing to think that that's the God of the universe. Like, I need God to be that, right? Or else we're all in big trouble. If that's not the nature of God. But that's the nature of God. Now let me, um, Luke 22. The scriptures are filled with this imagery and this concept. But here's Luke 22. A dispute arose among them, at the disciples are like walking with Jesus. This wasn't too long before this whole basin and towel thing. As to which of them was considered to be the greatest so they're arguing amongst each other. Jesus had walked with them for three years, taught them everything he could, and, and now they're arguing about which disciple would be the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. In other words, people far from God and their kings and their government and their politics, they're, they're built around this kind of thing. Those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. He's, they have titles. They have big fancy titles. But you are not to be like that. Other versions say not so with you. Which is just a chilling yet powerful. Like here's the way the world does it. Not so with you. Instead the greatest among you. Should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? This is not the one who's at the table. He's talking about in the world's eyes, it's the one who's at the table. This again, just before he's about to serve. But I am among you as one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. So the disciples are arguing about greatness using all the typical worldly definitions. And Jesus says essentially there's the world and there's the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, the greatest are the least. Elsewhere in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, the greatest among you will be your servant. The greatest among you will be your servant. The world defines status and greatness by having a seat at the cool kids' table, by being treated with respect, by being served. Jesus defines greatness with one word, servanthood. Isn't that awesome and brutal at the same time? God, the God who will judge you and me, defines greatness 
as servanthood. Greatness is servanthood. It would be a surprise to some people who have greatness in the eyes of the world when they stand before the judge with a capital J and realize that his greatness scorekeeping is very different than ours. He's looking for servanthood. So, let's talk application. Let's start with your definition of greatness from earlier at the beginning of this little talk. Do you need to adjust some things? Like maybe you were right in line with God's definition of greatness, or maybe you have some, uh, some, some thinking to do about your definition of greatness. Uh, do you think of greatness, and will you continue to think of greatness in terms of bank accounts and size of house and social circles and what other people uh, see you as, uh, uh, do for you, uh, how people look up to you, or can you make the adjustment to God's definition of greatness as that of the servant is that of laying down your comforts and your rights to, so, to serve others, to help others. Let's, um, let's talk about, like, at the workplace. Um, if you go into work anymore, I know a lot of you don't, don't do that anymore. But uh, what, what does it mean to be great? at your job? What does it mean to be a great boss? What does it mean to be a great employee? What does it be a, mean to be a great coworker and have great relationships at work? How do you define that now? What's that mean to, to be a great boss in, in, as it relates to, to servanthood? Let's talk about marriage. What's it mean to be a great wife or a great husband? It means servanthood. It means asking, how can I meet the needs of my spouse, how can I outserve my spouse? And I, you know, talking to, to husbands, I know that statistically, um, you can do a just a quick Google search with with many uh, um, much research done on the typical American home, and and generally speaking, it's understood that the wife outserves the husband seven to one. I don't know how they come up with the stat, but it seems reasonable. Like when it comes to taking care of the house, taking care of the kids, things like that, that the typical wife outserves the husband seven to one. So I would say, husbands, let's fix that. Let's outserve our wives. Let's be great husbands. Parents, if you're a parent blessed with kids, what's it mean to raise a great kid? I can tell you that in my circles and in my own life oftentimes, most of the, most of the money and the time and the energy um, is spent thinking in terms of academics and extracurriculars and athletics. Like that's where the effort's given. That's where the, the like when we think about greatness, it's the grades, it's the athletics, it's the extracurricular stuff. That's where all the Instagram and Facebook posts center around, right? What's it mean to raise a kid who's great in God's sight, who understands the importance of servanthood? What's it mean to give energy to produce greatness in the eyes of God in our kids? And that may mean completely going against the grain of what your social circles celebrate 
with their parenting and family and kids' success. We said that in the coming season, um, as there's a lot of chaos and we don't even know what, you know, what all of this means for the next few months as, as, as a church um, in terms of energy and focus and all that. But one thing we know is that you need to um, feed your soul, focus on that. You need to uh, cross divides, reach across divides. You need to um, help the underdog, and you need to invest in the spiritual growth of your children. You need to, you need to own the development of the spiritual health of your children. Those are four things that we can absolutely control and focus on um, in this next season, no matter the chaos. And you know, when, when it comes to servanthood, if you can reach across a divide and serve someone who is very different than you, who thinks different, who votes different, who acts different, who believes different, I mean, when you can, Matthew 25 says, when we cross a divide and serve, we've done so to Jesus. Or the underdog, when we serve an underdog, when we serve, serve someone who's not like us, that's where real spiritual health and growth and vitality is found. So how can you be great and serve an underdog or serve someone across the divide or help your kid understand greatness in the sight of God? Let me close with one, one story. Um, longtime friend of Polaris, a guy named Andy. He was a part of Polaris, better part of 20 years. And Andy, um, very quiet, standoffish. He had a very distinct, nervous laugh. Um, he served up in the sound booth, um, advancing my slides and slides for worship. And that's the kind of role that, if you do it right, you get no credit. And any credit given is given to whatever's going on on the stage because it just looks better. If you mess up, every head in the crowd turns back to look at the guy in the sound booth or the girl in the sound booth. In this case, I think, I think April's up there. Um, Andy also would come in on weekdays and uh, as a volunteer, and he would vacuum our offices, and he would empty our trash and just kind of straighten up completely behind the scenes. Well, a couple years ago, Andy's lifelong health problems caught up with him, and, and he, he passed away. And um, I had to do his funeral. And he didn't live a big life. He didn't have yachts and second homes and, you know, uh, some high-rise office downtown with a lot of direct reports. <coughs> He died, I think, while he was on disability from his sicknesses. But what I could do is look at his mom and his widow and the people at the funeral and say, as God defines greatness, Andy was one of the greatest human beings that I've been around because he was humble. He was a servant through and through. He was never looking for his own credit or his own status. He was completely um, happy to serve others, however, whatever the need be. 
as Andy stood before God, he could know and look back on his life that he lived as a great human being. And so I don't like to play this card very often, but as we think about facing God one day, as we think about our funeral, at that moment, all of our accolades at work, all those awards, they'll be put into some tote and, you know, down in your widow's or widower's basement or just pitched. And your job will have been already posted probably before your obituary hits the paper. Um, most of those kinds of accolades will be quickly forgotten, and at that moment, all that will matter is God's definition of greatness. And so I hope that we'll all, myself included, uh, take some time to think about God's definition of greatness and what we want the rest of our lives to move toward. Is it God's definition of greatness and servanthood, or is it the world's definition of greatness. And I hope that um, you'll choose to be great husbands and wives and great parents and raise great kids and be great at the workplace and great neighbors and great in the community because that's where true meaning and fulfillment is found. I right, we stand and we'll do one last song. Father, it's incredible to think that you, the Almighty, the All-Powerful, the All-Knowing, the Creator, that your nature is one of a servant. To stoop down and serve those who you created, who rebel against you, whose hearts are often far from you, and you left heaven and you gave up your comfort and your rights and your status to serve us and to die for us. Please help us to go and do likewise. In Jesus' name, amen.